Hey folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you audit your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're going to get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down. My blood sugar is down. My weight's down. My health is up. My sleeping patterns are better. My metabolism is up. If you want to experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. American happy Tuesday. Yes, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. I hope your family's preparing for a blessed holiday with family and friends. I'm so thankful for everything that our country still has great about it. Yeah, we got some dings and some dongs and some dents and some concerns, but I still believe in the goodness of America. And I think this Thanksgiving, we should all renew ourselves to fight for our country, to restore it to where it needs to be, to make it the country that we're proud to live in, as we've done for generations before us. All right, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to start off with a pretty important conversation with Victoria Coates. She is the former Deputy National Security Advisor of the United States to President Donald Trump. Currently, she oversees foreign policy at Heritage Foundation, one of the most articulate voices in all of policy in today, particularly foreign policy, security policy. We're going to talk about, yes, Israel, Hamas, Joe Biden, Ukraine and Russia, all of the world's crises, and whether we have the right message, and is there a conflict in what the Democrats are saying to Israel right now that long-term could have a detriment on the security, safety, and potential peace in the Middle East? That's going to be a pretty heavy conversation to start things off. Victoria is always one of the most enlightened people I get a chance to interview, uh, a really good one. In the second phase of the show, uh, we're going to have a quick interview that I did the other day with Brian Leib. He is the head of Case Pack. He is leading the charge to fight anti-Semitism in America, a tremendous ally, a tremendous common sense thinker. He has solutions to some of the things that we're all shocked at. There's no doubt about it that the last few weeks have awakened a lot of Americans to the scourge of anti-Semitism, which, by the way, has been building on college campuses, building in schools, building in America for about a decade and a half without very many people condemning it. Certainly not enough people condemning it, because if they did, it wouldn't have got to this point. But in the last few weeks, there's been some pretty amazing outspoken warnings. Law firms saying, we're not going to hire you law students if you're bigoted and you hate Israel and you're anti-Semitic. That had a profound effect. Donors saying to universities, we're not going to fund you. We're pulling our money. You're teaching hate, not teaching 
skills. And I think that that has had a profound effect. And of course, Brian Leib will get us up to speed on that. And then in the final block, a prolonged discussion with a guy who I think has the most profound look at Argentina and why there was a earthquake landslide election on Sunday night. Javier Millel getting installed. He's a neophyte politician, a conservative, a populist, and really vowing to smash the status quo of politics. And why is that so popular right now? Because Argentina keeps going through this bust and boom and then debt crisis. Bust, boom, debt, bust, boom, debt, bust, boom, debt a crisis over and over again. And folks here got tired of it. They want to get in a politician who puts an end to the cycle. Well, Gregory Makoff has a brand new book coming out. It is profound. It is called Default. And it tells the story of Argentina over a century, really, and why what's happening there has clear overtures, clear applications to the financial crisis we in America are now experiencing. Think about this. Our debt is $34 trillion. It is uh, now larger than the gross GDP of the United States, something that economists said was a point of no return. There's no sign that it's stopping. We're one to two million tra- uh, on track for one to two trillion more debt this year. Democrats and their Republican cohorts have spent us into a dizzying crisis because now we spend a trillion dollars a year not on making America better, but on just servicing the debt. And that could get worse. And we've got other cliffs and ledges right ahead of us, including in the next decade, Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid going insolvent. Those are big concerns. Greg Makoff has written this incredible book called Default. And it really is about Argentina, but it might as well be about the United States. We're going to have a great, profound conversation. And what Malel's election in Argentina this Sunday might say about what happens in 2024 in America. That's the show for today. Now, one other thing I want to tell you about. When you wake up in the morning, go right over to justthenews.com. We have some brand new January 6th security footage. This not coming from the Capitol Police security cameras, but these coming from the body cameras of a few of the Metropolitan Police units. Uh, They were turned over to Congress recently. It's a new form of footage. It's not part of what Mike Johnson's releasing now, the speaker, but it does give us some insights. There is a fascinating moment where a undercover officer who's a part of a surveillance team says, hey, I'm an undercover posing as Antifa. Now, we don't know if he means that day, January 6th, or he means something earlier, but it's something that we were deprived of during the Democratic January 6th committee hearings, it's a really more important issue. And let me describe why. What we're going to report tomorrow, and you're going to get it early because you listen to John Solomon reports, is there were more than 1,100 Metropolitan Police Department officers who responded to the January 6th scene. That is a huge response. It's much larger than I think a lot of people knew. But among those deployed were electronic surveillance teams in plain clothes. Okay, so electronic surveillance teams in plain clothes. What does that mean? It means that they weren't easily distinguishable to the Capitol Police or to the Uniform Metropolitan Police or to the Park Police or to the Secret Service or to any of the other law enforcement agencies that responded. And most disturbing, you're going to see an interview I did with Chief Stephen Sun. He was the Capitol Police Chief on January 6th. He got fired a few days after that. He says he was not told. He did not know that those undercover surveillance officers were there. What you're going to see is the video footage those surveillance officers had on their body cams. And this is a really important issue. I mean, the people want to say, okay, Antifa, and I understand that's an interesting argument. We've got to find out what that officer meant. doesn't mean that it's nefarious. But there is a bigger issue, and it's the issue I keep saying. The United States Capitol, according to every smart person that I've interviewed in the last two years, is no more safe 
today than it was on January 5th. Police are no better prepared. Yeah, there's a lot more money been spent, but some of the core issues of intelligence failures, security failures, still aren't addressed. And one of those those is the very real possibility that on January 6th or on some day in the future, God forbid there be another crisis at the Capitol, of a blue-on-blue tragedy. What do I mean by that? Well, a uniform officer comes upon an undercover officer posing as a protester or embedded in the crowd, and they don't know they're an officer in something untoward happens. Something violent happens. It's happened many times before. Many times have you heard a story of an on-duty police officer shooting an off-duty police officer because he didn't know he was an off-duty police officer. Blue on blue tragedy is one of the learnings that has not yet been fully learned. And Congressman Barry Laudermark, the chairman of the House Administration Oversight Subcommittee, he's determined not to let that lesson go to waste. He is going to force the conversation, force the questions, force the interviews, force the video footage out so that police departments can be better prepared and not repeat what happened on January 6th. And there's a lot of things that happened wrong on January 6th. Remember, Chief Sun came on this very show and said January 6th was an avoidable tragedy. It could have been avoided, starting with the intelligence failures the three weeks before, starting with the failure to deploy the National Guard in advance, starting with the security failures that you saw on video over the last few months when I made them public here at Just the News. Among them, Kamala Harris, the vice president-elect, being driven right by a bomb yards away because the Secret Service didn't properly sweep the property at the DNC. Remember the door that got bumped open by an officer, and then it got unlocked, and hundreds, not dozens, but hundreds of rioters were led into the Capitol uncontested because someone accidentally unlocked the door. A lot of people don't think that issue is resolved. And of course, there's one other one. Remember the bag with handcuffs and police gear left on the ground? The bad guys got to take it for a while. They had to be retrieve it. Those are security failures. Those are things that Capitol Police and other police can do better. But no one wants to have that conversation. Well, no one, until at least Republicans got in control. I think with starting with Speaker Kevin McCarthy, starting with Rodney Davis before he retired from Congress, and continuing today with Congressman Laudermilk, we, for the first time, for the first time, have someone who wants to get to the bottom of these issues and just fix them. It's not about embarrassment. It's not about political shame. That's what the first January 6th committee did. This is about making the Capitol safer, making Washington safer, making police better equipped, making sure that maybe we can prevent a future tragedy like January 6th, because this one was, as all the experts have told us, an avoidable tragedy. So please go check out justthenews.com. The video footage is there, a very powerful story by my good colleague, Stephen Richards and myself in the morning. You'll be able to check that out, the video footage all there for you to see. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Victoria Coates up next. Hey, folks, can your IRA or 401k stand up to the next financial crisis that our top economists are saying is right at our doorstep? By allocating a percentage of your retirement into physical gold and silver with a tax-free rollover, you can diversify and safeguard your holdings from a turbulent market and economic downturns. All you got to do is put your IRA back on the gold standard. With a multi-trillion dollar trade deficit and ongoing geopolitical instability, experts say now is the time to make the switch. Find out how to safeguard your assets with a tax-free rollover with a Genesis Gold IRA, the only IRA that can hold physical precious metals. Protect your retirement today with one simple phone call and receive your free gold and silver guide from my good friends at Genesis Gold. To do that, call Genesis Gold Group today at 800 200 
G-O-L-D, gold. That's 800-200-GOLD. And find out how you can add precious metals to your IRA. One more time, let me give you the number. It's 800-200-4653. gold Or visit them at genesisgoldgroup.com. Genesis Gold, welcome to the John Solomon Just the News family. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. There is a lot of history unfolding today in the Middle East, a possible short-term deal to have Hamas release some of the hostages they've held for six weeks in return for a small period of reprieve from military action. But the dynamic after that becomes very unclear. It seems like a lot of Democrats on Joe Biden's side of the equation want this war to slow down. And I think Israel knows it can't let it slow down. It has to finish the job of eradicating Hamas from Gaza. Our next guest not only is an expert on national security, she has faced these very decisions. She's the former deputy national security advisor for President Trump and currently the vice president of Heritage's Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy, basically the foreign policy think tank inside the Heritage Foundation. It's our good friend, Victoria Coates. Victoria, great to have you back on the show. Thanks very much, John. Good to be with you. We love all the work you do. Today is one of those days where I think people are trying to grasp, is this a good thing that's happening? Is the hostage release good? What are the short and long-term trade-offs for it. Can you referee, just based on what you're seeing unfold today, what's likely happening between the U.S., Israel, Hamas, and, and Qatar, who looks like to be the other player on the, on the negotiations? Yes. Yeah, so the Qatari official just uh, publicly confirmed that kind of Hamas's final offer was conveyed to the government of Israel overnight last night uh, to release some women and minors, uh, children, obviously, I think about 56 of them, is the number that's being uh, being tossed around in in uh, exchange the Israelis would need to release closer to 300 women and minors, uh, Palestinians that have been uh, convicted of crimes and imprisoned in Israel. So you know it, it, this isn't exactly proportionate. You know they're not hostages; they are legal prisoners, and it's it's a much larger number. But of course, you know and 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 you know. Qatar has come in for a great deal of criticism and all of this, and no one is above reproach. But at the same time, they are doing what the Biden administration has asked them to do. You can debate the wisdom of that ask, but you know they they are complying with what what Washington is requesting. So so I think 
for those who are being hypercritical of Qatar and all of this, I, th- I think we shouldn't lose sight that the bad guys are Hamas and the Iranians, they're, they're paymasters. Uh, you know, it is unfortunate that Biden started pressuring Israel for, you know, these daily pauses and humanitarian aid before we got the hostages out, because now there's, it's, it's a much larger ask. It's multiple days for their Hamas to regroup and bring in more material. Uh, we know the Iranians had a lot of success smuggling stuff into Gaza uh, in, in the lead up to the attack. One wonders if they will use the pause to do more of that. Uh, but it's it's always good when you get these unjustly detained uh, people out. I'm sure it's a horrific captivity in Gaza. So, of course, we will all rejoice when these innocents are finally freed. Uh, it's just coming at a very steep price, of course. Yeah, it really is. And the question is, what's the long-term implication? Some people are worried when I talk to in the intelligence community that this deal will lead to greater pressure on the left of Joe Biden. And Joe Biden seems to be to the center of some of the lefties in his party, that this should be the acceleration point to, hey, let's slow Israel down entirely. Let's not have any more war against Hamas. Let's call a truce permanently. How does that play out? And what are the dangers if the left gets an upper hand on this? Yeah, it's it's a fascinating political dynamic. I think, you know, most Americans are pretty shocked by the displays of sympathy for Hamas and Iran out of uh, out of a couple of in- a couple of interesting groups. Arab Americans, not surprisingly, uh, are very sympathetic toward Hamas. But then also we're seeing this, John, all across academia are elite institutions of higher learning, and then very strongly in the State Department and the Foreign Service, uh, which is in a state of semi-open rebellion against the president, against the elected commander-in-chief, who they are serving uh, voluntarily in his in his administration. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because this is not a majority opinion in the United States, uh, that, that most Americans are not anti-Semitic. Most Americans do not approve of Hamas and, and the monstrosities that they committed on October 7th. But we do have this loud and powerful, you know, these are the people who are teaching our children for the most part. Uh, these are the people who are conducting our foreign policy. You know, this is, this is a, you know, not, not to be dismissed as, you know, just kind of a, a a fringe group. These are these are folks who who really do influence power, and I I don't know quite how the president can square that uh, politically or policy wise if his own employees do not wish to carry out his his orders. Yeah, there's another irony too. We had this story the other day, but some of these State Department employees have openly suggested that Joe Biden's claims about. Israel, our disinformation, a funny line, given that the president spent much of his time running in 2020 claiming stories about his son were disinformation when they were true. But even that point, I mean, they're literally trying to turn some of the president's own terminology around on him. This bodes for something, I think, down the road. The next president of the United States seems to have an opportunity, if not a mandate, to rearrange the State Department, which seems to want to do whatever it wants to do, regardless of what the American people have elected them to do. No, I think I think it's one of the most pressing tasks. And I think, you know, we're working on Project 2025 at Heritage, which uh, is preparation. Yeah, it's preparation for whomever our candidate may be. We're talking to all the campaigns and heck, we, we would offer it to Joe Biden if he decided he wanted it. Uh, 
you know, it's it, it's just a, a, a compendium of good ideas and good people who can get after this and figure out how this went wrong. And and one really piece of good news that I'm not going to be able to talk in great detail about, but you know, going forward, it'll become apparent. There are a lot of excellent career foreign service officers who have said to me they want to be part of this. They they want to have input on how this happens because they realize that what's happening in the State Department is is just unconscionable, and it, it has to change for the sake of the institution. And this gets into technicalities like how folks are hired, how they are promoted, uh, how jobs are are distributed. Uh, but they they know this this is broken and wrong. And if you decide you want to be a career foreign service officer, you need to be prepared to serve any president and serve them with to your greatest ability. Uh, and it's not up to you to sort of pick and choose which policies you want to promote. What a novel idea that the government serves at the will of the people. It's, it used to be that way, but it doesn't feel that way in the last 10 years. And that's what makes what you're doing at Heritage so exciting, is really trying to realign government so that it's efficient, smart, and constitutional again, which I think will be a welcome thing. I want to stop for a second. So we know now, all right, they're going to play out the hostage negotiation. Then there'll be this pressure. We'll see where President Biden ultimately comes down. Thus far, he's held some of the line, not as much of the line, but some of the line. But I do think a second question emerges. There's so much evidence that the Israeli Defense Forces have put out from the interrogation of the captured Hamas terrorists and what they've admitted they've done, what they admitted their strategy was. And it debunks so much of the early narrative that the media put out there, the sympathetic media, the APs and the Reuters and others, as well as it highlights the horror of these attacks. These were not military attacks. These were not anything that followed any conventions of war. Hamas literally created some of the most heinous, inhumane attacks I've ever seen described in my lifetime. How do we get more people to absorb the magnitude of the evil that was exhibited these the first few days of that war? And what are some of the more jarring things that you think people should know about these interrogations? Yeah, the, the most, maybe the most jarring thing, John, is that, that Hamas is, is not in any way trying to hide this. You know, they're not, they're not sort of being furtive or, or in, any way, uh, in any way bashful about what they've done. They're proud of it. They, they were the ones who had, you know, the reason we have footage of this is they were all wearing uh, go camps. They were all recording as they did it. And the footage is is horrific. Uh, you know, I think people know that a lot of uh, the sort of most sensationalist stories about, uh, you know, the, the gang rapes and the baby put in an oven and the children tied to their parents and set on fire. Uh, and, and, you know, it can become almost numbing when you realize the sheer scale of what went on. And, and you know, then when these terrorists are being interrogated by the Israelis, they don't they don't try to to make anything up or make I mean, they, they are proud to tell what they did. Uh, they would call their parents and tell them how proud they were. And that's where I think we really see what's so deeply dangerous about this situation is you can't make 3000 people that vicious by by accident, you know, simultaneously. And if they are calling their parents, A, their parents probably knew that they were going, uh, but you, you need to start at a pretty early age to, to create that kind of uh, terrorist militia that will act in concert the way these guys did and, and be this savage. So 
So by whatever dehumanizing brainwashing process, you know, this has been going on for years. And this is what the Israelis are dealing with. And for the president of the United States to go to the pages of the Washington Post to proclaim that now is the moment we must reaffirm our support for a two-state solution, just it, it sounds ludicrous. You, you can't reward them with that kind of responsibility after they did this. The burden is on them, on the Palestinians writ large, uh, Hamas in particular, but the Palestinians have to find a way to get, get out of this or else you know, there, there can be no hope of any kind of political uh, solution like that. Yeah, the, the mentality, the mindset, the deep-rootedness of it, an entire generation of Palestinian children being taught hate and seeing no moral bounds to their behavior to carry out whatever the agenda is, is so shocking. And it's something that just the elitists in Washington, the elitists in universities, the elitists in the global establishments of the United Nations and others, they don't want to talk about it. They want to ignore this. But this is a reality. That if you don't address it, all you're doing is switching labels and putting the same people back into power post the Hamas eradication. Do you think that our policymakers understand that and are willing to make the hard changes that need to be made? Unfortunately, I see absolutely no evidence of that in this administration. And there's some, some shocking uh uh, statements also coming out of the Congress. I mean, the fact that Chuck Schumer couldn't get anyone, any Democrat, including himself, to vote for aid to Israel is, you know, that is, is a big problem. And at the same time, they have to look at what they're doing in terms of funding the institutions in Gaza and West Bank that are creating this culture. And um, first and foremost, UNRWA, the United Nations dedicated uh, uh, agency that that deals with the Palestinians and runs famously runs the schools and you know folks that follow this closely may have seen you know the the sort of bizarre uh, Mickey Mouse knockoff videos teaching children to kill Jews and the textbooks that are filled with anti-Semitism and there's been kind of a oh well you know it's just a cartoon you know it's just a textbook uh, you know it's a cultural thing like no. This is disgusting in all its forms. And if you start kids with these cartoons, it is not then surprising that they come out the other end, you know, committed to this kind of, of heinous violence. So the some billion plus that has been poured back into institutions like UNRWA under the Biden administration, I mean, the Congress has to strip that out of all of these funding vehicles. There's nine billion, John, in humanitarian aid uh, in the recent uh emergency supplemental the president sent up, not a nickel of that should should be appropriated because they, they are able to send as much of that as they want to the Palestinians. They're saying, oh, it's for Israel, Ukraine, and the Palestinians. Well, we don't give humanitarian aid to the Israelis. We, there's 60 billion other dollars in the supplemental for Ukraine. So this 9 billion looks to me to be pretty much dedicated to the Palestinians. And that, that just has to stop. It, it, it does not work. It, what it resulted in was the most heinous terrorist attack in Israel's history. We lost dozens of Americans. Uh, so Congress just has to hold firm on this. Yeah, yeah there's no doubt about it. There is an, a, mo a moment right now where I think people are looking out and there's very clear choices, clear choices on the economy, clear choices on the Russia-Ukraine war, clear choices on Israel-Hamas. Perhaps the clearest choice is the different approaches between what a Donald Trump presidency did and could do again, and Joe Biden has done, 
going back to the Obama years when it comes to Iran. We are in a proxy war with Iran. All these other players, Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic State, and others that are in Israel, they're really just proxies for Iran. There are very two different visions. Do you think the American people are beginning to realize one vision hasn't worked out too well for them? I, I really do. And, you know, the president's overall approval is in the tank, but a majority of Americans don't approve of how he's handled the situation with Israel, even though he has gotten some praise for being stronger than we would have thought. But there's no uh, feeling that that he has, you know, he has really recognized the root of the problem, which, as you say, is the Islamic Republic of Iran. And then there are Chinese bankers uh, who are who are pulling the strings in all of this. And uh, you know, we're going to have some fresh polling come out on the Daily Signal uh, Heritage's uh, news website on Monday, I believe, which has two questions about how the American people see Iran. And I don't want to get too far ahead of, of the signal, but one thing I can tell you is the lowest number of responses of I don't know, came, and it was dramatic, came to the two Iran questions. And there is broad bipartisan agreement that Iran is a huge problem. And the strongest number, close to 70% of Americans, as I said, across the board, age, political affiliation, income, location, close to 70% of Americans are afraid of a terrorist attack that is masterminded by Iran that comes up through the southern border. That That is a very difficult number for the president. Uh, if that many Americans are seeing this threat clearly and want something done about it, and he continues to insist that the open border is our best policy. Yeah, that's exactly it. It is jaw-dropping. You made one last comment I want to touch on, because I think a lot of people don't understand that communist China has played a big role in the resupply, the remonetization of Iran. The Trump administration, on your watch with President Trump and the national security advisors, they were able to starve Iran of money through sanctions and tough enforcement of sanctions. I think the bank accounts in Iran were down to like $4 billion. Today, they're closing in on $100 billion under Joe Biden. Uh, China is a big player, particularly with oil sales. Tell us a little bit about how China plays uh, so nicely with Iran in complete contravention to the sanctions. Yeah, no, I, it, it, this is this is the story that has to be told because you know we had the spectacle of the president earlier this week, you know, welcoming Chairman Xi to San Francisco with all the communist Chinese flags flying and asked him for help with Iran, which is just laughable. It's like when they ask them for help with Russia. What China has done is deliberately and systematically created two dependent vassal states out of two of the world's largest energy producers, Russia and Iran. And they are have become their uh, customer of choice. And so, as as Iran and Russia are sort of pariah states, it's hard for them to sell on the open market at this point. But they can just keep shipping that stuff to China, and Xi is happy to buy it up all day long at a discounted price. And so that's how he's solving his energy vulnerability. And you know, the Russia part of it. Is it predates the Ukraine war, but it's certainly uh, a contributing factor to that. But then for Iran, the Biden administration just stopped enforcing sanctions that, as you said, we were very aggressive about implementing, and they're still in place. They could still do it. There's no, no legal impediment. They just are addicted to those two million plus barrels a day on the market that they don't want to produce here in the United States. And if they take that product off the market and they don't ramp up production here by deregulation, 
uh, then there's going to be a price spike and that'll be political pain for them. So they, they are, that is acceptable collateral damage for them that, that uh, Iran gets hundreds of billions of dollars out of this. It's a pretty remarkable dynamic, and it's happening right under our noses, and it barely gets discussed. It certainly wasn't a focal point of the summit, and you just have to wonder how China keeps getting away with such anti-American or anti-norms in its policy. It's just shocking. Victoria, before we go, and I want to wish you an early happy Thanksgiving. We're so grateful for all the time you spend with us. We're always smarter when you come on the TV and radio show, (laughs) and we are grateful for that. But for people who want to follow the great work you're doing at Heritage, and particularly the, the crafting of this 2025 vision, which I think is going to become the blueprint for the next president, how can they follow you? And what's the best way to stay in touch with your great work? Oh, well, thank you. And I just want to thank you, John, and and all of your audience across all of your different platforms who just provide such great support and feedback. I really appreciate all the opportunities you give me to share share what we're doing. And uh, at heritage.org, if you go on there and search for my name, all of my op-eds and a number of my media appearances come up. And then if you're interested in more of my views and maybe a little bit too much about the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, <laughs> well, you got to be happy after last night. I'll tell you that. Th- there was there was some tweeting last night, uh, but, uh, but it's at Victoria Coates on, on X, I guess it now is. And uh, so those are probably the best ways to, to catch up with me. Well, Victoria, there are so many ways that people can serve our country. The way you do it is most impressive, both in and out of government. You've continued to put common sense um, solutions, national security solutions in front of the American people. That's so important, particularly in an era where the risks are so high. We're, we're just so grateful for you on this Thanksgiving. And thanks for the time today. Thank you. And happy, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family as well. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we've got a great conversation with Brian Leib, a man who's on the front lines of fighting anti-Semitism. But before that, I want to help you fight the winter cold. That's right. Why should you be cold when my good friends at Heat Holders can make you a great half, a great scarf, a great pair of socks to keep those feet warm on the cold days? Heat Holders are my preferred garb when I go out in the winter to my cabin up in the Shenandoah Mountains. You should make them your preferred garb. And by the way, they're great Christmas gifts, great stocking stuffers. You've got socks, you've got hats, you've got gloves, you've got scarves, you've got throws, and they all retain the heat in ways that so many other products don't. They are truly the warmth in your winter. And because you're a Just the News fan, a John Solomon Reports fan, Heat Holders has a very special for you. If you go to heatholders.com today, enter the promo code JUSTNEWS, one word, you're going to save 15% off your offer. You're also going to receive free shipping on any purchase over $25 or more. Don't freeze your butt or your feet off this winter. Remember to go to heatholders.com. Say thank you for their support of Just the News. John Solomon reports Just the News, no noise, a television show. Go use the promo code Just News. That lets them know you heard about it here and you're saying thank you for them. And in return, they're going to give you 15% off. One more time, heatholders.com, heatholders.com. They make life warmer. And in this case, they're going to make it cheaper too. You're going to get 15% off if you use the promo code Just News. All right, when we come back, Brian Lyme right after these messages. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote, it's about elevating 
your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I, committed to preserving our cherished values and actively opposing the leftist agenda that's sweeping across America. Just look at their recent victories. AMAC members helped to push forward an investigation into practices that inflate drug prices. They successfully defeated ranked choice voting in order to protect traditional voting methods, and they've also helped block a federal takeover of elections. As AMAC's membership grows, Washington is listening. Every new member strengthens this movement. If you love America, visit AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Just News to become a four-year member for just $30. That's a great discount. AMAC is not only better for America, it's better for you. Membership gives you access to the AMAC magazine, free social security and Medicare guidance, money-saving discounts, trusted news, sweepstakes, and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale, four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC, AMAC.US slash Just News. That's AMAC.US forward slash Just News. Hey, folks, if you're a homeowner and you're like me, you want to protect your home, right? But when's the last time you checked on the title to your home? If you never have, listen to this. A new report on homeowners shows we all now have $16 trillion in equity. That's an all-time high in America. That's why you need protection from a scam the FBI calls house stealing. That's when the equity in all of our homes is the target, sadly, of scammers. If nobody's watching the title to your home, these scammers can transfer your title to their name, take out loans, and your equity could be gone. Poof, gone. You have to protect your equity from this despicable crime right now with triple lock protection from my good friends at HomeTitleLock.com. The first step is to check on your home's title to see if it's still in your name. Sign up with your address at HomeTitleLock.com and be sure to use the promo code JUSTNEWS. They're going to send you a complete title scan of your home's title in your first 30 days of triple lock home title protection. That's legendary protection, by the way. It's free. HomeTitleLock.com. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS. One more time. Go to HomeTitleLock.com today and protect your most important asset, the equity in your home. Welcome back, everybody. After a largely successful six-week campaign in northern Gaza, Israel is setting its sights on Hamas strongholds in the south. But war along the Lebanon border could be imminent as well. Brian Leib is the president of the executive director of Caseback, as well as the CEO and founder of Henry Piar. And he joins me now in studio. Brian, you've done such great work on not only getting American support for Israel, but also understanding the forces here in the United States that lead to these ugly protests like we've seen, all this anti-Semitism. Six weeks in, watching how America's pushed back on anti-Semitism here, watching the uh, the equivocal support that Biden gives Israel. Where are we in this process? Where we are is we're about 45 days in right now, and Israel has done a lot to weaken Hamas thus far. Uh, There still is much more that has to be done. Uh, And of course, we're all very concerned about the 10,000 pound gorilla on Israel's northern border vis-a-vis Hezbollah. Uh, When you look at Hezbollah compared to Hamas, they're two completely different uh, terrorist organizations. While they're both funded by the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, Hezbollah has so many more resources uh, than Hamas does. So, you know, that's what we're all waiting to see what's going to happen right now. Uh, but one thing is for sure, Israel is is really uh, doing everything that they can uh, to eradicate Hamas. And, and John and Amanda, it has to be done. Radical Islam should have no oxygen anywhere in this world. We've seen 
what radical Islam produces, and it's time to, to get rid of radical Islam anywhere uh, it rears its ugly head. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And, and Brian, I, I look at the arc of philosophy of the two major political parties in this country, at least during my lifetime. And it seems like it has switched because there was, I believe it was a Gallup poll back in the spring that found that Democrats uh, support Palest uh, Palestinians at 49% over Israel at 38%. And that is the inverse of what it used to be. What, is, it, is it the influence of the squad? What happened? Well, I don't think we have enough time uh, to, 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 uh, to break all of that down. But what it really comes down to is Jews in America um, have different priorities uh, when you compare left versus right. Me as a, as a conservative Republican Jew, um, you know, supporting Israel is very high on my list. Uh, being a very outspoken and visible Jew is, 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 again, very high on my list. Um, unfortunately, with some of my friends on the left, it, it's really not the same. Uh, now, with that said, Amanda, I think the, the tragic events that we saw unfold uh, in Israel on October 7th uh, have really woken a lot of people up. Uh, what I'm looking at now is how long does that last? Is this real change uh, that we're going to see, a real shift uh, from, the, from the Jewish people here in America? Are they finally understanding uh, that while there are some good Democrats, by all means, um, there are some very horrible Democrats that have really hijacked the Democratic Party in a lot of ways. So uh, it is time for, 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 for Jewish people to really wake up, uh, see what's happening. And uh, unfortunately, maybe it took an event like this for people to really wake up and, and see what's going on. Yeah. Brian, a lot of times when we have an awakened, people talk for a while and then the action sort of stops and we go back to status quo. And I think with anti-Semitism on college campuses, there seems to be this moment now. Right, there's a lot of agreement. Boy, we're a little disturbed by what we've seen. But the actions that really would create lasting change aren't quite there yet. Deplatforming uh, hate groups, uh, maybe kicking out foreign students who express violence or hate in America. What are some of the concrete actions that still need to be completed for us to get a lead on this anti Semitism been creeping up for so long? John, that's a great question and, and something that, that I've been very outspoken about and we've started to see a lot of members of Congress in the House and Senate do this as well, is that there are college students on our college campuses that are here as guests of this country with student visas. When you're here as a guest of this country and you're threatening violence against other Americans, you're ripping down American flags you are being openly hostile and threatening violence against fellow, uh, not fellow, but other Americans, right. that's an issue. And that needs to be held to account. Now, I'm not saying you have to revoke student visas for every single college student that's attending a protest. That's not what I'm saying. But it sure would be nice if they would make an example out of 10 or 20 of these kids that are here as guests of our country that are calling for slitting the throats of Jews on college campuses. Yeah. You know, once you start doing that, John and Amanda, you cross the line and you should be not just, well, your student visa shouldn't just be revoked, but you should be deported. And maybe if we started as a country to do things like that, it would start to actually dial back the anti-Semitism. In a country that I was in just a couple weeks ago in Hungary, there wasn't a single pro-Hamas protest, and if there was, they would have been deported in five hours, yeah. maybe maybe two hours. You know, so it is a zero tolerance policy that we really have to start seeing in this country. I don't think the Biden administration is up for the challenge. They've shown us that that is the case, uh, but we'll see. I'd like to be surprised. 
Yeah, um, and and you brought up something important, and I think with respect to this administration and their foreign policy, um, I remember not long after Joe Biden was inaugurated, I think it was in February of 2021, Antony Blinken revoked the FTO status of Ansar Allah or, or the Houthis in Yemen. And I think he said that it was because of a humanitarian crisis that was taking place there in Yemen. But unfortunately, we have seen this administration and therefore the policies that contribute to this administration and, and its support among Democrats in this country, uh, they've been kind of kneecapped by foreign regimes. And this obviously there is, it's not an incredibly long thread to connect this to Iran and the hotbed of what's happening in the Middle East right now. With respect to that FTO designation for the Houthis, why do you think Antony Blinken is just so dead set on not uh, reversing that? You know, I think his hands might be tied on, on, on this. I've got to be, be honest, and I want to throw a, a little bit of a, a, not a kudos, but but some compliments to, to Secretary Blinken. I think he has been relatively good on a lot of things, um, and I think that his hands are really tied. I mean, just a couple of days ago, we all saw, saw the video of uh, President Biden uh, calling uh, the leader of uh, the People's Republic of China a dictator, and Blinken's there shaking his head like, oh, my God, what did this guy just say again? <laughs> So I think that Blinken is a little bit of a moderate. With that said, he does have the power as Secretary of State to take unilateral action. I don't think he needs to have Biden's blessing to be the Secretary of State. Um, so he really should be that Secretary of State, be that leader, uh, put his politics aside, redesignate the Houthis. They are another arm of the Islamic Republic of Iran. They're no different from Hamas or Hezbollah, both which are uh, U.S.-designated foreign terrorist organizations. So the same should be done with the Houthis, especially uh, with them uh, uh, taking over a uh, Israeli-owned ship in, in just the last 24, 48 yeah. hours. I think they thought there would be a lot of Israelis on that ship. Unfortunately, there were none. Unfortunately for them, I should say. Um, right. You know, so yeah. I mean, I, I think Blinken has an opportunity here to really put uh, put 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 the future of this country and, and, and really above politics, and, and and it shouldn't be that difficult. Amanda, for him to redesignate the Houthis. He'll have widespread support uh, from both sides of the aisle in the House and Senate if he were to do such a thing. The question is, does he have the moral courage to do what has to be done? Yeah, that is a big question. Brian, real quick, we only got about 20 seconds left. I want to ask this. The media has been wrong on so much of the early reporting on the war. Do you think there's a moment of rethinking things in the profession? Yeah, it's uh, listen. It's a very fluid situation. Obviously, what happened with Israel, and uh, I've got to tell you, I w was seeing things that a lot of people. I hope you never see. Right. Um, in the in the aftermath, just a couple hours, and. Uh, mm. We've got to be honest with what's happening right now. We've got to hold media accountable. All right, folks, don't go anywhere. One more good one. The author of the upcoming book, Default, the story of Argentina, which finishes really with this extraordinary election Sunday with Sergio Malel. We're going to explain it all with Gregory Meckett right after these messages. You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor-formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Chronic stress wreaks havoc on blood sugar, which can cause your body to store excess fat. Stress can also slow your metabolism, which fuels weight gain. And you know all about stress eating and sugar cravings, right? Now the good news. The studied ingredients in Lean have been shown to help maintain healthy blood sugar levels, help optimize metabolism, and keep your appetite under control. Now, if your life is a bit stressful like mine and you want to lose weight, 
add lean to your healthy diet and exercise lifestyle. Now get 15% off and free shipping at takelean.com. That's takelean.com and enter the promo code justnews15. That's the promo code justnews15 at takelean.com. One more time, takelean, L-E-A-N.com. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a healthcare provider. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner. Whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite, you and your family need to be prepared. That's what we learned from this last pandemic, right? That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their great doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough on all the time on our shows. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals that you can trust. And the new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy, and most importantly, prepared. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin and z The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all of these life-saving medications. So you know what you're doing. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID and even the bioweapon like the plague, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to keep you and your family safe from whatever the globalists throw your way. Go to www.twchealth/justnews today in order. That's twc.health/justnews and use the promo code justnews to save 10%. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. As you know, there was a landmark election just to the south of us in Latin America on Sunday. A conservative populist captured the election over, believe it or not, a career liberal politician. And people are trying to interpret what's going on here. What made Argentina so remarkable as an election is not just the change in power, but what led up to it. An extraordinary growth in debt, interest, and inflation all at once. And our next guest has a book coming out called Default. And I think it is going to open your eyes to why what happens in Argentina and what just happened in Argentina may really matter to what happens on our shores. Joining us right now is my good friend, Greg Makoff, joining us now. Sir, good to have you on the show. Um, Hi, John. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about the inspiration for Default. You've got this book coming out. I think it's going to help us understand the much bigger picture of inflation and its consequences globally. But what was your inspiration? Uh, I used to work in this field helping countries default, um, restructure their debt, and deal with problems. And it's really terrible. People really suffer, and people need to understand how bad it is. If you consider how much debt we have. You come out of Wall Street, right? This is sort of an area where you used to help countries and companies that were in default kind of go through the process, correct? Yeah. All right. So in this particular book, there is sort of a yarn that controls all this. And it's really the $100 billion court case that the Argentine government waged. Tell us about that court case and why it creates the framework for the much larger concern that you're raising, the issues that you're raising in the book. Well, I think going to today's events, the election of Mele is opening a new chapter in Argentina's history. What I've written about is the prior chapter, which started with Argentina's default on $100 billion of debt in December 2001, 
which led to a recovery, but then a backsliding and they're back in trouble again. And so it raises this historic question now, are they going to fix it for good? In the episode I write about, there was a huge dispute over the fixing of the country, particularly the restructuring of the debt. Instead of it being resolved in a couple of years, which is more normal, it led to this historic court case with a huge battle, not just between Argentina and the creditors, but Argentina fighting with the judge and the Second Circuit itself. It became quite a battle of wills between the government and the court system. Yeah, isn't that amazing? It's also a reminder of the long-term consequences of debt. And I think when people look at us, our side now, I, I didn't think in my lifetime I would see a United States where the national debt would exceed the GDP, where interest rates alone, just the interest debt service on our own debt would be above a trillion dollars a year, almost an unfathomable number. And of course, that could go higher if interest rates continue to rise to deal with inflation. I assume one of the undercurrents of this book is the danger of accumulating so much debt that even a country ends up in grave danger. Tell us about the debt culture and how it sort of puts storm clouds on everyone's horizon right now. Well, debt, when the cost is pretty low, a couple percentage of your budget, a couple percentage of GDP, people kind of borrow at will. But what happens when you get more and more debt, it crowds out your ability to fund other stuff. Right now, our debt service is at 40% of our spending on Social Security. But if you go 10, 20, 30 years in the future, our debt when it skyrockets from now about 100% of debt to GDP, the CBO estimating 180 in 2053, we're going to have a serious cracking out problem. So when you deal with countries who are lax about their debt, when times are good, they borrow a lot, and then it starts crowding out their ability to function. Inflation goes up, growth goes down, and they find themselves in a trap. And Argentina's the cautionary tale of what happens when you get caught in the trap. But for Argentina's case, it's a hundred years of history of boom, bust, devaluation, default. And that's what makes Millet fascinating because he wants to change that history. He was on the road, the election road with a chainsaw cut the government, I'm going to end this history, and he won an overwhelming victory. A huge margin over 11% in 21 of 24 provinces. The people, it's kind of like the 70s in the U.S. with the misery index. People are angry and exhausted and want to change. And they've lived the misery of debt distress more than any other country which is the reason to study it. Oh, absolutely. It is. And he really wants to disrupt the cycle. In fact, that's his whole point, which is the status quo is just not an option anymore. Aren't you tired of it? And it does seem like the Argentine, Argentine people were clearly tired of it. I mean, that's a landslide. 11 points is a massive win in you know electoral politics. He's sort of a newbie to politics. Obviously, he's been on television, so he's kind of known to people. But politically, he's not known very much. And that seems to have been one of his appeals, which is uh, Argentinians saw over and over again career politicians going through the cycle of boom, bust, devaluation, debt, boom, bust, and do it all over again. 
I think they're looking for someone who literally blows up that cycle and they're willing to bet on an outsider. Is that a good read for what you've seen thus far in the election results? It's not just statistical. The stories I'm getting from Argentines on the ground is you get families whose grandpa voted for Juan Perón and their parents voted for the Peronist party and their uncles voted for the Peronist party and they got a 22-year-old kid and he voted for Mele. And his parents are saying, why'd you do that? He said, this isn't working. We have to try something different. So this is not just a question of statistics. It's a generational change that's happening here. But the question is, will it work? Can you reform a serial defaulter? And Mele, it's a very extraordinary event on Sunday, but he doesn't really have a full party backing him or anything. So there's the question is what happens next? Um, there are a lot of questions, but um, um, should we talk about that? I'd like to jump to that in a second. I guess the, the, we, the, uh, the political antidote was let's pick an outsider. Now the question is what is the policy and solutions antidote? What do you see in Malay's early comments, his post-election comments, how others in Argentina have reacted to his win that would suggest that there is some coalition or some way to get something done that would change what has been a recurring cycle? Well, the, the tricky thing here is he has what you'd call a popular mandate, but he does have to rule by coalition. He um, had the cleverness or the luck or the to bring in Patricia Bullrich, who, who was the third candidate, she brought in 20, she had 24% of the vote in the first round. He had 30%. If you add those, you get 54%. His final percent was 56. And so with the support of the, the former president, Macri, and with Bullrich, he was able to come over the top. So he, in effect, started forming a coalition with that party, but he only has about 28, 29 um, members of the deputies when you need 127 to pass legislation. Oh, he has, I'm sorry, 39 representatives of 257, and you need over 129 to pass legislation. And so he needs to bring in not only most of Macri's people, he needs to bring in some governors who are the power brokers in the country and say, I can work with you. And here's where the, that's where the magnitude of the electoral majority matters. Politicians who lined up along party lines and blocked progress one way or the other, Mele can point to the majority and say, are you going to help fix the problem or are you going to be a blocker? And so what we need to see between now and the December 10th inauguration is the building out of his coalition and the formation of his platform in his step-by-step -step plan and his cabinet. And you don't fix a, a mess like the country has in a day from previous debt crisis in other countries. You set up 20, 30 things you're going to do. You do them one by one. You don't backslide. 
and at the end of a couple of months, confidence returns. And he needs a plan. He needs a program with the IMF, with the 44 billion of debt owed to them. He needs to stabilize the exchange rate. He needs to do some initial budget cuts to build confidence. And so all that's on the table. And he's building the coalition as we speak. So I think it's a wait, wait and see between now and December 10th. And the news will come fast at that point. Yeah, that, that is the key. That is the key. We're going to have to watch. Now, there are lessons in the sentiments, the generational sentiments that led to Malay's election win in the United States. It does seem like a lot of people, particularly those who feel the effect of inflation and tie it to government spending and to debt, that there is a growing part of the American population worried or tired of the cycle of debt here. Does the same sort of fervor in the electorate that we just saw in Argentina, does it have the potential to play out here in 2024 in the United States? Oftentimes, national debt doesn't move voters, right? It, it, even when there's a pocketbook election, that's not the main issue. Maybe 1994 was the one instance where there was a mandate for a balanced budget and the end of debt. But most times, debt doesn't play a role here. But it does seem like people are equating the hardships that they see when they go to the grocery store or the, and the gas station to the combination of government spending and government spending leading to debt and debt leading to higher interest rates. What readings, what insights should we take from Argentina for our own election that's a year away? I want to wake people up. That's part of why I wrote my book. It's not in our political dialogue enough. People need to deal with this. I highly recommend the CBO's June report. They map out all the implications of where our debt and expenses are going for the next 20, 30 years. It's terrifying. It needs to be on the agenda, and, and we need real leadership on the topic. So I'm hoping I help raise awareness. And while I talk about my book about Argentina, it's not this is some funny little country who messes it up. It's everywhere in the world. We have politicians who do the same thing, which is if there's a budget gap of a billion dollars, does the executive of the country cut spending a billion, raise taxes a billion, or go borrow another billion from the market? They all borrow from the market, and that's how debt gets bigger and bigger. And, and look at Argentina. We don't want to go down that path. We are on that slippery slope. We are at the beginning of that slippery slope, but it's beginning to accelerate. Yeah, that is the warning sign. And it's, it's, it's so true. If you were to cover the news of the last year and a half, even as the, you know, we're now going up in debt by trillions in months now, not even in, in, in years, it's hard to find a lot of coverage on the size of the debt, the CBO's warning, some coverage of Moody's downgrading the United States. All right, so that got some attention. But it's remarkable for the potential magnitude of the threat that this rising debt and interest uh, service is creating to the coverage. It's almost uh, anti-proportional. There's uh, so little coverage on something that real learned people say poses a short and long-term threat. How do we change that? How do we, I remember in 1994, the rise of the Newt Gingrich revolution, the Republican revolution that approached Congress, there were really two or three sentiments, which is career politicians spend debt all the time, therefore we should have term limits. Two, uh, the debt is going to crush us one day and we don't want to punish our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. 
And three, we need a balanced budget and a balanced budget amendment, perhaps. And so those three came in unison. And over time, there was consensus built among the American electorate. It doesn't seem like there is a large figure like a Newt Gingrich out there right now that's putting together the sort of debt coalition, the anti-debt coalition, like happened the last time this was an issue. How do we get from Malai's to the sense of urgency that this debt probably requires? I don't see this becoming a 2024 issue, but I'm hoping that there are discussions across the political spectrum about this issue and that after the election, there are serious discussions, neutral discussions, focusing on the numbers, focusing on the choices, and honestly facing what's going to happen if we don't start changing. And I'm happy to, I'll be happy to be part of that process. But I'm not very optimistic in the short term, but I'm doing what I can with what I've done to, to help raise awareness. Well, uh, it is a public service to have this. And, uh, and, you know, history does repeat itself. It has different tenors and different fields and different generations. But cycles of debt have been well chronicled. And the, the consequences of a cycle of debt are well known in world history. You're doing your part with this. For people who are excited, they're like, I like this book. I want to give it as a gift. I want people to talk about it. How do people line up and get the book default? Um, it's coming out in February. It's up on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, bookshop.org, straight from Georgetown University Press on their website. How about that? And it's coming soon. Yeah, no, it's such a very important conversation. And I think at the end of the day, one that we might have to force a little bit more in front of the people. But I think once they do, just like we saw in Argentina, there could be a consequential reaction. The last question I want to ask is, I think a lot of people take a look and they, they remember little drips and drabs of headlines. All right, CBO said this, Moody just did that. When you look at the moment we're at now, which is, I guess we're at $34 trillion in national debt we're on course for somewhere between $1.5 trillion and $2 trillion of debt in this next spending year, uh, absent a budget-cutting deal in January when the House comes back. What does the next two years look like in terms of not only the debt arc, if it keeps the if status quo is the, uh, is the status quo, what are some of the prescriptions that people may try to impose to try to disrupt this? You know, um, that's a good question. The working with a lot of different countries in the end, you know, they have that debt clock in Union Square in New York. And I always look at that debt clock and I'm a worrier about it. And um, it's really the debt to your GDP that matters. And so it's hard because you need to stimulate growth and you need to contain the debt. And so you have to do things that are pro-growth and you have to do things that contain debt together. And so it's, a, it's really a comprehensive conversation rather than a single action. And all the pieces matter, but I'm, I'd call for an, a, a full conversation and for it to be a long-term and a medium-term conversation. But there's no question through the 2024 election, we're going to have the numbers creeping up. And that's not good. 
Yeah, and there's just one other little problem that for 40 years has been kicked down the road, and that is the Medicare and Social Security funds are also barreling towards insolvency. And that's not even on the budget sheet in terms of a solution. Those are two other pressure points that I assume complicate the picture and why short, midterm, and long-term, there needs to be a strategic approach to this, right? Yeah, exactly. And But it all ties into growth. So all the policies connect with each other and you have to have a kind of social contract where people agree what services they're going to get and what they're going to pay for it. And it's a question of good governance, as you've talked about, not pork, not pork barrel government. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. And there's an interesting thing that some, several members of Congress have said. I just want to ask about this as sort of a final thought. There is almost a simple resolution to this, which is if we went back to the spending of 2019, it's kind of remarkable that actually revenues, at least at, at the end of 2022, fiscal year 2022, revenues would have covered a 2019 era budget. So just snapping back four years, just snapping back to the post or pre-COVID era could actually, if you just said, hey, we're going to commit to 2019 spending levels, our deficit shrinks and the debt is at least frozen for a period of time. Is there something that simple that potentially is sitting out there uh, for members of Congress to rest, which is, hey, if we only go back four years in spending, we're not going to be that bad off. Is that a rational, reasonable goal? I hear a lot more members of Congress talking that way than I did a couple months ago. Every idea like that needs to be on the table. Yep. Yeah. And right now, I just Getting it on the table may be the biggest challenge. That's why what you're doing, Greg, is so important. This book, Default, I think is going to be such an important one for everyone to read. And I'm glad it comes out right at the start of the new year so people can start the new year with a different perspective and a different type of conversation. What a great honor to have you on the show, Greg. For people who just want to follow your everyday work, what's the best way to track you on social media and other places? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on X, the former Twitter, and um, post, post thoughts on different things, 99% about sovereign debt around the world. Yeah, it's important. It's an important issue. It's, it's, it may not be the most sexy issue in politics, but it's perhaps the most consequential to the future of our great country and of the world. And I'm glad that you have the courage and the uh, determination to keep it in front of us and on the public dialogue, because it is something that needs to be there on a daily basis. Greg, I want to thank you so much. I want to wish you an early, happy Thanksgiving and uh, look forward to getting you on around the time of the launch of the book so we can extend this conversation out to the new year. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Great honor. Thank you so much. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. Hey, quick reminder, if you want to take advantage of that special offer from our good friends at Heat Holders, go to heatholders.com, put the promo code in just news, one word, 15% off, scarves, hats, socks, you name it, gloves, the best throws. I love those. Uh, they're great Christmas gifts. Why not get 15% off? And if you use the promo code Just News, you not only get the discount, you tell Heat Holders, I appreciate you for supporting John Solomon, for supporting Just the News, for supporting the television show on Real America's Voice called Just the News, No Noise. That's a good idea. You thank one of our sponsors and our advertisers, you get a great product, a great Christmas gift, and a great 15% discount. How do you do that? One more time. Heatholders.com. Use the promo code just news at checkout. All right, folks, we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Marjorie Taylor Greene going to kick things off. Watch out. She's got a new book coming out that's roiling Capitol Hill. She calls it like she sees it. And that's made some Republicans and Democrats alike a little uncomfortable. 
We'll also have Rodney Davis on the show. He'll talk about that January 6th scoop we have and a whole lot more. So be sure to tune in tomorrow. Until then, God bless you. Have a great night. You've been listening to John Solomon Reports, a podcast from you know where, just the news. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS. They know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. Hey folks, can your IRA or 401k stand up to the next financial crisis that our top economists are saying is right at our doorstep? By allocating a percentage of your retirement into physical gold and silver with a tax-free rollover, you can diversify and safeguard your holdings from a turbulent market and economic downturns. All you got to do is put your IRA back on the gold standard. With a multi-trillion dollar trade deficit and ongoing geopolitical instability, experts say now is the time to make the switch. Find out how to safeguard your assets with a tax-free rollover with a Genesis Gold IRA, the only IRA that can hold physical precious metals. Protect your retirement today with one simple phone call and receive your free gold and silver guide from my good friends at Genesis Gold. To do that, call Genesis Gold Group today at 800 200 G-O-L-D, gold. That's 800-200-GOLD. And find out how you can add precious metals to your IRA. One more time, let me give you the number. It's 800-200-4653. gold Or visit them at genesisgoldgroup.com. Genesis Gold, welcome to the John Solomon Just the News family.